Oh my God, you gotta stop. <laughs> Why do you do this to yourself? It's such a bad habit. It's, it's so stupid. Yeah, you need to get off Twitter, man. <laughs> I, I, after the book comes out, like a few weeks after, I'm taking a long Twitter break. Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Barr. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mickey Inslicht. Mickey, how are you enjoying spring? Oh my God, it's like an actual spring here. It's fantastic. I know tomorrow it's going to be like a snowstorm or something like that. Um, so I'm just enjoying it. Uh, you know, enjoying the good weather. When I took my motorcycle out for, you know, from storage, uh, for sitting there in storage in winter. So it's been super nice. What about you, dude? Uh, I'm having a strange experience, which is, you know, this winter, I think I mentioned, I've been like getting out a little more and doing stuff in the snow. And I'm actually a little sad that winter's over. It's like kind of an early warm spring and it it didn't snow a lot here in Ontario. And I'm kind of sad that the snow is gone, which I never thought that I would be there. Dude, you're like a Canadian now. I I am. (laughs) Learned to ice skate, as you saw. I'm very bad at it, but I don't fall over. And I feel like this is really, they should just give me citizenship now, actually. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's there's only one, you know, on the citizenship test, there's really just one question that you have to get and then you're automatically Canadian, which is, what do you order at the Tim Hortons? (laughs) Uh, I know this. I know this. It's a double-double. Ah, there you go. Oh Welcome, man, my I'm in. fellow Canadian. I'm in. All right, so we should stop dicking around. Um, I want to introduce our guest. Uh, our guest today is Jesse Single. Uh, he's a science journalist, an author, and a podcaster. Uh, he's the former editor uh, of New York Magazine's online social co- uh, science coverage. He's also written for the New York Times, Atlantic, Slate, the Boston Globe, and lots of other places. He is also the co-host with Katie Herzog of the Blocked and Reported podcast, a podcast that's much more successful uh, than ours is. Uh, and he also has a new book out called The Quick Fix, Why Fad Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills. Longtime listeners might also remember Jesse from episode 13, so he's actually a repeat guest. Uh, that episode was called What's Wrong with the IAT. Jesse, welcome back to the show. It has been too long. Thank you for having me back. Oh, it's a, a pleasure to have you back. Um, and I agree, it's been way too long. Uh, Mickey is typing into our shared show notes, and it says in capital letters with four exclamation marks, beer. Um, I, Mickey, you were worried that I f- would forget, weren't you? I, I was worried that you would forget. <laughs> Not without cause. All right, let's talk about what we're drinking. Uh, well, uh, well, Jesse, have you, uh, you know, our last guest, uh, apparently a, a really devoted listener, Carl Hart, uh, didn't realize we drink beer in the show. So he, he didn't have beer in his, in his defense. What hint could he have gotten that that was the case? I know. I yeah. Know. How would anybody know? Yeah, <laughs> I did. I, I'm visiting my parents in my home outside Boston, my hometown. So I decided to get a, uh, a local craft beer. And is that what it's called? A local craft beer? <laughs> yep, that's it. No, I got I got a variety pack of Jack's Abbey Craft Lagers. It's a Framingham Mass Craft Brewery. And I am about to crack open the Shipping Out of Boston Amber Lager, which is hopefully a uh, copyright-friendly riff on Shipping Up to Boston, a great Dropkick Murphy song. So this is um, highly condensed Boston in a can. Amazing. Nice. That sounds that sounds lovely. Other than the logger part, uh, it sounds great. <laughs> How dare you? 
<laughs> well, I actually have a, a beer that uh, inspired by you, Jesse. Um, so first, it's a New England double IPA. So uh, you know, I know you're from uh, from Massachusetts. Um, the beer is from a, a, a local local brewer, like my neighborhood brew pub now, a Collective Arts uh, out of Hamilton. But they've got a little little uh, brew pub in right down the street from me, so I go there all the time. And it's called Good Monster, which you know I, I think, depending on your perspective, might describe you, Jesse. <laughs> I like that. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm looking forward to. Oh, it's also eight percent alcohol, so uh, we should have a good time. I think. Excellent. And uh, I'm still off the beer. Um, I'm now on the tequila. Uh, this is. <laughs> <laughs> That's not usually. I'm not drinking beer right now. I'll That's have some right. <laughs> I, I really need to take it easy on myself, guys. Guys, I'm not smoking pot past the PCP. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know if you know this, Jesse. It's, it's, it's been a little bit of a bone of contention between the two of us, between me and Mickey, that I just haven't felt like drinking beer like the last few months. I, I don't know what's going on with me. And Mickey's very disappointed every time I see his like disappointed face where I'm still not drinking beer. And uh, I, I promised that someday that I would start drinking beer again. But that day, sorry, Mickey, is, is not today. <laughs> so so I'm doing the tequila instead. It's uh Salsa Hornitos uh, Reposado, and uh, I'm uh, I have this juice glass of it. Um, so uh, cheers, 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 guys, cheers. Mickey, do we are we ready to get started here? We are, we are. Super excited to have you, Jesse, and and again, thanks for for coming on. I think the last time we had you on, uh, did we smoke weed together on air? I would never do that. Oh, yeah, right. no, it had literally just been legalized, and you. Um, yeah, you seduced me. You groomed me into smoking weed. <laughs> totally legal. I think we were. I was you know, euphoric at, at the moment. A, a day I never never thought would come. And now, like it's like so blase. There's like twenty dispensaries, like literally within you know five hundred meters of my house. Um, I was I was driving back somewhere from somewhere with my dad today, and he saw a billboard that was just like recreational cannabis, and he was pointing out how weird it would have been in the states just a couple of years ago to see that. But uh, yeah, the good guys won. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, so, okay, so I want to I start with asking, we're, we're definitely going to get to the book because uh, uh, you all and I both read it, which is unusual for us. We have lots of guests with books. We never read them, but uh, uh, we uh, that's only partially true. You all read them. I'm very, um, I'm <laughs> scrupulous about, I think I've read every book. Uh, I've, uh, I've read some of them. Um, so, but, but definitely read yours. Jesse just finished it, I think, uh, last week. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and, uh, we'll get to that in a bit. But, um, you know, I, I hear your voice all the time now. Uh, I'm a, uh, not a Patreon, as you just discovered, but I'm a listener of your podcast with Katie Herzog called, uh, Blocked and Reported, which has it been a year that it's been out or less than a year? Or? Yeah. We're recording this March 23rd. Tomorrow is, uh, first birthday. Oh, wow. It's oh, tomorrow? Cool. Mazel tov. March 24th. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, happy birthday. Um, and so I just want to ask you about how, you know, how that's going, how that, you know, came, came, came to pass and what, what, what's been the reaction to your podcast called again, Blocked and Reported? Yeah. It's the last year has been so weird in so many ways. And, um, I mean, the, it's just weird. I'm, I'm a podcaster now. It's like sort of what I do for a living. And I, I never would have thought that would happen. But basically, Katie and I met because she emailed me. We ended up both, you know, being seen as somewhat controversial for articles we wrote on that subject. Um, everything our critics have ever said is wrong. We're right about everything. I should be clear about that. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> 
but we sort of bonded over that and over a little bit of a growing sense of unease that like things weren't going so hot in liberal journalism. A little more than a year ago, Katie took a buyout from The Stranger, which was sort of collapsing. That's like a famous alt-weekly, home of Dan Savage in Seattle, where she lived. Uh, And we were just sort of like, let's try to record a podcast and see what happens. And, you know, it it just sort of blew up. We've been incredibly fortunate. I sort of feel like I I won a scratch-off ticket I drunkenly bought at 2 a.m. in a 7-Eleven. But um, it's been amazing. And, And our listeners are awesome. The show is basically just we talk about internet bullshit. That's like the the conceit, but you know everything is internet bullshit these days. So so we've we never have a shortage of material, and it's just been um it's been a complete blast. It's it's probably like the second best professional thing that's ever happened to me behind the book. Yeah, it's sort of mind blowing to me that two schmoes can start a podcast, and it's like a regular like upper middle class income, right? I, I'm not giving anything away. This is like on your guys's Patreon. How much you get per episode? It's like live comfortably money. That's sort of insane, isn't it? It's completely insane. And it, it shows, I think it like this should be the one thing that finally disproves meritocracy. That's what I'm hoping. <laughs> well, I want to push back a little bit on that because you, you guys are really entertaining. So I have, you know, uh, stepped back uh, from Twitter uh, a lot. I, I would recommend the same for you, Jesse, by the way. But, um, you know, totally step back. But I listen to your podcast and I get all the craziness in, in like an hour or 45 minutes and it's so entertaining. Um, and oh my God, Katie is hilarious. And I just love that she makes fun of you nonstop. So, uh, and you're, you're very good humored about it. People like watching her cyber bully me and you know, as long as I'm getting paid for it, I'm down. Yeah. She's, uh, you know, but how do you feel about her latent anti-Semitism? I think that her, I mean, I wouldn't call it latent. I would say that her uh, virulent anti-Semitism adds a certain uh, je ne sais quoi that most podcasts lack. <laughs> right. <laughs> We're highly anti-Semitic here. Uh, it was three, three years right here speaking. So, three years. Uh, yes. No, Katie, Katie, Katie's great. And I think we have like, what I've told people is like, the chemistry works and you can't account for that. And that when I say meritocracy is a lie, other than I do generally believe that, but you can't really account for like, you guys probably have friends where you sit down and talk to them and you can't imagine someone else finding it entertaining. When you guys talk, it is entertaining. I've been, I've been a listener forever. So you just, there's no accounting for that chemistry thing. And I think there are probably a lot of like better and more talented and hardworking podcast people who just don't have that thing that you can't really wrap your head around. We're just, we're lucky we have that. That's all there is to it, I think. Yeah. In, in our case, uh, you know, it's all in editing where we are very boring in real life, but you know, <laughs> we're just great editors. <laughs> right. And fueled by alcohol and, uh, and, and marijuana occasionally. It helps. Yeah. So back when you had uh, a real job, uh, it was um, writing about social science research for for New York Magazine, for their website specifically. Um, And so I wonder how you go from doing that job uh, to writing a book about how overhyped social science is. Can, (laughs) Can you explain how that works? Yeah, I mean it was a pretty straight line. If you're you're in the belly of the beast cuz you're getting all the press releases, the all caps amazing findings, you're I mean I was there during some pretty bad social priming stuff. So, I didn't start that job like intending to become a hardcore debunker, but I'm uh negative by nature. I liked to debunk and there was it was a target rich environment. I mean, 
you know, when I started there, I mean, these are just, we'll talk about my book, but like grit, the IAT, power posing, a lot of these ideas hadn't really been punctured yet. And I was there to, to help puncture some of them. And I, I just think I had so much more faith in the psychology, in the enterprise of research psychology until I started writing about it every day. And you just sort of, no offense to you guys, you guys are the only good researchers, but everyone else just sort of, uh, I have some questions about about their work. Thank you. That is a correct opinion. Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I wouldn't even let myself on there. UL only. Oh, uh, that's that's very kind. I'll, uh, you, know, you, can, you can write <laughs> we it. We can talk about ego, ego depletion next time I come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah no, exactly. I, I missed that chapter in the book. Yeah, that's where I, the I just I kept that out just to protect you. Thank you. Uh, so you know your background. Um, you do uh, have a master's in public policy, right? And you took some stats classes, so you have maybe more quant training than the average journalist does. But still, I'm curious how. Like, was there a moment where you're like, "This is all bullshit," or was it kind of like a slow realization? Like, how did that happen? For me, it was, I mean, we already talked about this on the last episode, but my, my real entry point for this was the implicit association test. And with the help of some of the researchers who debunked it, um, just seeing the gap between the claims and what had actually been proven, that was a pretty big moment for me because I, I mentioned this in the intro of the book, but it's like, I believe this thing was as important as the psychologist said I now don't think that, but if I believe that, what else do I believe that isn't true? What else am I writing that isn't true? And it just, I think it made me much more skeptical. So I, you know, this is a little bit of a detour, but you kind of talked about in this very like vivid way, this like torrent of press releases that you get if if you do this job, if you're a science journalist. And I, I think it sort of brings up the question of like, I mean, I guess you could point the finger both at the researchers slash their university press offices and uh, the journalists who sort of credulously write this stuff up. But if you had to pick one or the other, like whose fault is this mess? Oh, man, it's like uh, it's like the opposite of having to choose your favorite child. <laughs> it's like having to choose your least favorite child. Um, <laughs> I, I think at the end of the day, researchers have more of a responsibility you can't expect every journalist to like have stats training and journalists i don't know there's under such ridiculous pressure these days as the whole industry melts down and, and like with psych researchers you know one of the positive stories of my book is i get into the responses to the replication crisis and these sort of methodological innovations you guys have come up with Maybe when someone writes like the definitive history of social psychology, for example, it'll be clear that you guys could have figured this shit out much earlier. But um, it seems you're on the right track and it does lead one to wonder like why why it took so long, especially with not to beat up on social priming. But like some of those studies are just they they flew so far in the face of common sense that there should have been more skeptical editors like asking more tough questions before publishing them. Uh, you mentioned social priming, and you actually coined this term prime world um, to describe what you see as a misguided approach to specifically to solving kind of pressing social problems using psychological research. Uh, c can you explain a little bit um, what you use that term to mean? Yeah. So, so prime world is the idea that primes and biases go a long way toward generating important outcomes. And um, my, I, I criticized John Barg in his book, Before You Know It, pretty heavily because I think he's like sort of one of the dons of prime world. In this view, we can make a lot of progress solving problems in um, in education or race relations or inequality 
via primes and biases. And my argument is that like if you sat John Barg down and you asked – I'm probably mispronouncing. Is it Barg? Barge. Barg. I, Barge. I should know. Um, but uh, yeah, so it, it's it's sort of a worldview where primes and biases can go a long way towards solving problems. And you know, I, I don't think these guys would would ever – claim that there aren't other reasons for educational inequality. But th- what I argue is that their work sort of speaks for itself. When you read John Barge's, Barge, Barge. That's a, Barge's book, I'm the, I'm the expert here. Um, you know, he says things like belief in global warming depends a great deal on the recent weather. Like, And he doesn't quite say this, but you, you would think from his explanation that people swing wildly back and forth between believing in global warming and not based on the temperature when there's like a small effect at the margins but but really people believe in global warming because of their political beliefs and their social network and he 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 has a priming forward explanation for the great crime decline in New York that started in the 90s which is just such an example of a complicated sort of multifactorial social science mystery, and he reduces it to priming. And I think a lot of these guys do that. I think the IAT people act like we know that implicit bias is a very big deal. Um, Angela Duckworth, I think, acted like grit. We know grit is a very big deal and an important causal driver of outcomes, although she was more hedged in her claims. And then Amy Cuddy, in certain ways, is is sort of the worst because she made very overhyped claims that you know, the gender gap in the workplace has much to do with women's sense of felt power, which I just, I don't think there's that much evidence. So they all, yeah, that that's the basic idea of Prime World. Um, yeah, it's a really nuanced, a much more nuanced argument. Um, and uh, then what what we see so much of in social psychology, and I think your your, your subtitle like uh, about you know quick fixes, you know one it's it all comes down to one thing. This is the reason for inequality or educational disparities or crime, uh, for example. Um, you know, it's it's too easy uh, in psychology. And what I think you you hammer home uh, over and over again in each chapter is, look, here is this problem. Psychologists say it's due to one thing. Look, it's clearly not only one thing, it's 20 things. And and one thing you point out a lot, which you think social psychologists would get, is you talk about the structure. You talk about the situations. You talk about structural problems. Right. Um, and again, you think social psychologists would, would get this, given this is like one of our mantras. It's about the situation. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if you could unpack a little bit, because uh, some of our listeners might not might not be aware of uh, what you're referring to, um, with the crime problem in, in New York City specifically. Because, you know, Barge is, I think, was relying on something that, you know, Malcolm Gladwell talked about um, and that criminologists have talked about, this broken windows hypothesis. So tell us why, tell us what that idea is and maybe like what the problem is with it. The way Barge lays it out is that we look around and we see broken windows or not broken windows, and that's a social cue for how to act. Um, again, at like at the margins, there there's something there. It's not without any merit. But when you look at the list of reasons, um, you know, at the peak of this, it was horrible. 12-year-olds and 13-year-olds were blowing one another away over the crack trade. The reasons a given kid might murder another kid had so little to do, based on what we know, with things like priming cues versus a million other factors that the ready availability of guns uh their local social network how they were acting access to jobs it's just this rich complicated stew and to pretend that 
broken windows versus non-broken windows made that big a difference for something like murder. I'm not talking about littering. I'm talking about murder. I just think doesn't I don't think that does the problem justice. And that's even setting aside the fact that like broken windows had pretty terrible consequences for a lot of minority and low-income people in New York. So um I, I just crime is such a more complicated problem than that. That's my main beef. It all has to do with low self-control, right? Well for an individual kid, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> Good. I almost missed that. Nice, nice. Uh, so you mentioned a couple times um, primes and biases. And I wonder if you can just unpack, like, what exactly do you mean by those two things? Yeah, a prime is like a, um, a a subtle influence that supposedly has an unconscious effect. Uh, it's usually called social priming, even though they're often not social. It's not a great name. I think... Um, Neuroskeptic had as some good stuff on this, so that you know the classic example of that is the barge barge study where um <laughs> you're exposed to to words pertaining to the elderly like wrinkled or old and you walk slower, and and that's the premise of his book. The subtitle is the unconscious reasons we do what we do. Our behavior is batted to and fro by these subtle unconscious primes, um and then biases. I mean I you know I think we we know the basic idea of bias. Uh, I, I mean, I feel like that's self-explanatory, but but one example of that is implicit bias, where we hold a bias against a certain group, but we don't realize it, and then that manifests itself in our actions. Yeah, I mean, so I, I guess the the reason that I wanted uh, details on that is like, man, bias is a very broad term, right? So you could say like, you know, implicit bias having something to do with we implicitly hold some negative beliefs about a social group and presumably that affects our behavior, right? But you could also think about cognitive biases um, or you could think about biases in judgment uh, might have to do with like uh, availability, for example, like we make a judgment about how dangerous or likely something is by uh, whether we can readily think of an example of that thing. And there, you know, I, I think maybe you're on firmer ground is saying, hey, these things really are consequential and they have important distorting effects on people's decisions. Um, I, I don't know if you'd want to go there to say, you know, why is crime up, right? But you can definitely go there to say, why do people make bad decisions about risks, right? Why are they yeah. often risk miscalibrated about the risk judgments? I think that's fair. So I, I mentioned there are some contexts, like I have a chapter on nudging that is pretty pro-nudge. There's sort of a political argument about us um, overstating the importance of nudges. But yeah, in terms of understanding why individual people make certain discrete decisions, like um, uh, fear of plane crashes because of the availability heuristic, and, and that might seep into behavior, I think that's fine. If you're talking about an individual and you have a well-formulated theory of you know X leads to Y leads to Z, even something like the implicit bias um, – situation where where you could in theory draw a causal claim like that. I just feel like people often stretch the evidence that of all the reasons, for example, there's housing segregation. It's like how big of a pie, how big of the pie is implicit bias or even explicit bias there versus all these like really looming structural factors, especially in the States, because like explicitly racist decisions made in the 50s and 60s can obviously echo to today. So yeah, that's a that's a useful way of of putting it. And I think it's if you can point me to a, a discrete decision someone makes, I could probably carve out a role for bias there. But I think it's when you zoom out and try to understand bigger, more complicated problems, that's where I'm a bit more skeptical. 
Right. Or, or at least, you know, if, if you're going to make the argument that the outcome depends in some important way on these individual level biases, then you, you have to give evidence. You can't just show, say, well, we showed this thing in the lab and this bad thing happens in the world. And therefore, the lab thing is responsible for the world thing, right? Uh, yeah. And I think that's a, a good approximation of what happened with the implicit bias hype, to be honest. I want to follow up on, on something you said uh, earlier, which is um, you criticized in what you said earlier, not in the book, though, um, the concept of implicit bias, um, but not necessarily. Uh, and, and I wonder if you're trying to talk about the IT specifically, because in the book, um, and I thought I, I, I agreed with you here, you you mentioned that um, some uh, conservatives who maybe read, you know, read some of your, uh, you had a really uh, impressive uh, article. Was it in the New York Magazine, I think? Yeah, the website. Right. And um, uh, and, and conservatives read this and said, look, implicit bias doesn't exist. It's all bullshit. And you make clear that, no, no, you're not saying that. You're talking specifically about this one test. So tell me a little bit about that and how these two things can live together. How can the IT be a problem and implicit bias be kosher? Yeah, I mean, the analogy I use is like if you have a, a broken uh, thermometer, that doesn't mean temperature doesn't exist or isn't important. So I, I think it's impossible that implicit bias isn't real. I mean, just our brains are sort of uh, pattern-seeking machines that sometimes go a bit haywire. So I think we're likely carrying around various implicit biases in our head. I just don't think we have a right way of measuring them. I also think it might turn out they're incredibly context-dependent. And this idea of a one-size-fits-all test that predicts behavior full stop, presumably in a wide variety of contexts, it is pretty unrealistic. I mean, just when you think about the difference between like paging through resumes and and choosing which resume versus face-to-face -face social interactions with white versus black people. So yeah, I might have misspoken earlier, but I'm not skeptical that implicit bias is lurking there and perhaps having some causal effect. I'm skeptical we can measure it and I'm skeptical that at least in an American context, it can tell all that much of the overall story of discriminatory outcomes. And just to be clear, like when we're talking about implicit bias here, this is kind of broadly like abstracting away from any specific way of measuring it. You're acting in some way towards a group member that's guided by some stereotype about them and you don't know, right? That's that's what we're talking about here. Yeah, I'd say not even a, not even a stereotype per se. It's just like a a, a feeling, like an in interior internal sentiment you're not aware of. But yeah, that's the idea that you are you are acting in a way you wouldn't if you weren't implicitly biased. You're acting differently toward one group versus another without knowing it or without knowing why. Right. I mean, it, it just like, I mean, I guess this is the point you're making, but like, what a huge leap to say, well, that's an important driver of X social outcome. Like that seems like a claim for which you had ought to have some evidence. And well, I mean, is there like, Mickey, can we give this a fair shot? Like if we're like, what's the best evidence that implicit bias actually contributes meaningfully to some important real world outcome? What is it? Uh, well, so that's a really good question. I mean, I, I might actually uh, 
you know, modify Jesse's definition a bit. I don't think it needs to be behavior, right? I think it's, you know, some stereotypical association uh, that could just affect the way you, you know, you know, certain thoughts arise in mind that might not affect your behavior. Uh, It might not even affect your emotions, but like I see a black person, maybe I've got certain associations that pop to mind automatically without me wanting to. And and maybe I, I act in accordance with them. Maybe I don't. That's fair. I, I, yes. I mean, the, the, sorry, the implicit bias itself is just in your head. The claim has always been it affects your behavior because if it didn't affect your real world behavior, we wouldn't care about it, let alone pin all these big societal outcomes on it. Right. But to add, answer your question, you well, and I think we talked about this last time. Um, to me, the things that, you know, are harder to argue with that, you know, some of this stuff might be more important are the more, uh, the analyses that look at aggregated IAT scores at the state level, at the county level, and showing, for example, the counties that have, um, you know, uh, more anti-black sentiment, at least as measured in the, you know, on this IAT, um, have worse outcomes for, for black people who live in these places. Um, you know, to me, that's, that says there's something there. Um, it might not be measurable at the, or with precision at the level of the individual, but when we're talking about thousands, tens of, tens of thousands, millions of people, you know, these small little tiny little effects might make a difference. Um, so I think that says there's something, but, uh, but, but, but maybe I would like to hear what you, what you think, uh, uh, Jesse. I, I'm skeptical of that just because I see so many potentials for like confounds that that aren't accounted for because there are these patterns between white people and black people and Democrats and Republicans. There's something in the IIT. There's something being measured. But unless you really carefully accounted for that, like especially when you're – like I remember one one study that purported to show a link between IAT and like police shootings. Police shootings are really rare events. So I'm just – the sort of signal the noise issue is is big for me. I almost think like audit studies are are a better example because there are these patterns where, you know, stereotypically white names get more callbacks than black names. And it's a pretty big effect size. Even there, you need to assume that it's not explicit bias. And and there's also some evidence of a socioeconomic confound and that um, there's, there's a really clever study where Chicago researchers made up a fake ethnicity and compared the likelihood of, of interviews between that and black names, black sounding names. And it turned out it was, um, it was like a, a homophily, homo, homophily, another word I can't pronounce, uh, effect where, where people were more likely to call in the white names for interviews, but equally less likely to call in the black names and this made up ethnicity. So, you know, you, you see these results or these correlations and, and, Oftentimes, people haven't even asked the right questions to know what's driving them. Um, so, yeah. But I do think audit studies, if you had to point to one thing as evidence of some implicit bias, that's a pretty good start because it's probably not all explicit bias. Yeah. I mean, even there, I think you're making a big assumption that that it's not, that in private, uh, where there's basically zero accountability, that there aren't some people who explicitly have negative beliefs um, about some groups and are like, nope, not going to interview that person. I, I don't know. I, I, I wonder like whether given the overall, as I learned from your appearance on um, more of a comment, given like the overall low base rate of callbacks, right? Like, I don't know whether you'd need that many bigots to produce a big difference in percentage terms. But we are getting we're getting way. Yeah, that was a good point, Paul. <laughs> yeah, that dude's smart. Uh, we're we're getting way in the weeds here on this. And, and uh, maybe we uh we ought to back up a little bit. Um, I know Mickey has some 
has a hard-hitting defensive grit that he'd like to put forward. Is that, am I right about that, Mickey? <laughs> do it. Yes, I do. I definitely want to ask you about grit. Um, so I must admit, I was a bit surprised to see an entire chapter on it. Um, I, so for sure, grit has been critiqued and criticized for all different kinds of reasons. And maybe I should start by saying, uh, you know, that I, uh, I'm i friends with Angela Duckworth. I like her, so I'm biased. I've got this prior. So you know, take that you know, into consideration. Would you my, say my you're ex- explicitly biased, right? <laughs> I'm explicitly, that's right. <laughs> um, so, uh, but... You know, so you know, in the chapter, in the chapter, you describe how essentially it, it it's a it's a bad construct. It doesn't really predict much. Um, I, for example, I know you know some people said grit doesn't even exist. It's not a real concept, um, and it's certainly not something that we should you know uh, bank on in terms of improving educational outcomes. Um, but I well, maybe why don't you first lay out the argument, and then I'll then I'll ask you some questions. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's a a bad construct. Uh, so there, there's a couple of things. One is. I think a lot of your listeners will know this. It seems to overlap a great deal with conscientiousness. Uh, there was a bit of what some critics call the Django fallacy, where people treated this as a new thing when it isn't that new a thing. Maybe They're, like the, I think the most recent meta-analysis suggested that one of the two subfactors might offer some uh, incremental validity for predicting stuff. Um, that's one part. The second part is like how much grit matters. And and her famous quote was that it beat the pants off of measures like IQ and physical fitness and stuff. And if you dig into the studies, that is rarely true. It, it is rarely, it's often much worse of a predictor than those. There's some exceptions. There's some very specific, often range-restricted settings where grit does better. In many of those studies, she didn't also measure conscientiousness. I shouldn't say she didn't measure. She didn't always have access to the data. But when you look closely, there aren't that many studies where you can really put grit and conscientiousness head to head. And oftentimes, it just it doesn't really seem to beat the pants off of much. And then there's the fact that we don't have a reliable, scalable way to increase it, which is she's never made that claim that we do. But as some of the critics pointed out, like if we already have anti-truancy interventions and and giving people more study time and tutors, which all seem to do more than grit or grit interventions, it, it raises the question of why we're focusing so much on this thing. Um, okay, that's fair. I mean, that's a totally fair summary. So my pushback is, okay, so I, I agree, Angela, Angela sinned, okay? Um, uh, and she sinned in, in the jangle fallacy way. Right. So she uh, created this contract called grit and it largely overlaps. I mean, it, it, you know, we've rerun studies where the correlation between grit and conscientiousness is at the, uh, you know, at the, the, the ceiling. Like it, it, it you know, they, they correlate as much with each other as grit does with itself. Okay. So you can't, it can't get much higher than that. Um, but if we just, you know, say, okay, let's, let's just all agree grit is the same as conscientiousness. Okay, it's the same thing, but it's got a way better name. <laughs> okay, I can't even pronounce or spell conscientiousness. I don't think most people even know what it means. Grit, most of us know what it means. Um, so, okay, so she's now an evangelist for conscientiousness. Um, you know, Brent Roberts is, is as well, of course, um, but she was a better marketer. And it is for sure true that conscientiousness or grit or industriousness or valuing hard work, whatever label you want to put on it, that is an important quality, right? And it does predict a lot of stuff. Um, so what's wrong with that? Um, 
I think what's wrong is that she just just got a huge amount of publicity and success for for basically renaming something and also renaming something that in most contexts is not nearly as important as like intelligence most contexts I'm aware of and one of her big claims is like well she was she was sort of savvy here she said like what if intelligence isn't intelligence isn't the only thing that matters which is something we've known for I think decades because of conscientiousness but I think most of what you said is fair I just you know I interviewed Brent Roberts for the book or I emailed with him no one's been able to point me to any study of like a reliable scale away scalable way to increase grit or conscientiousness. So it feels like years later you're slicing the salami thinner and thinner and thinner to get to like what is the thing we were so excited about. And that's true of a lot of the ideas in my book. She was one of the more honest brokers with I have a couple of quibbles we don't need to get into, but one of the more honest brokers of talking about the limitations of her idea. That's fair. And, and, and thank you for giving her credit. Um, so, I mean, I think that's fair. I also, but I also think that, so actually Brent is, uh, is on a paper, which I've not read yet. Uh, but I saw, got a bit of, uh, attention on Twitter a couple of weeks ago showing that there, what, there might be some way of increasing conscientiousness. I don't think the effect was big. Um, we're talking about like a really long interventions, I think, based on, I think, uh, principles of cognitive behavior therapy. Um, but there might be some way, and in fact, I think a lot of us, myself included, are searching for a way to increase people's willingness to, uh, you know, uh, exert effort, to try harder, to work harder. Um, and she's brought attention to it, and I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. But 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 your 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 criticisms are, are valid as well. I think the the jangle fallacy looms large here for sure. Yeah, I mentioned. Um... I think in the book I mentioned one of the studies – Brent might have pointed me toward it, but it was sort of like a, a a personal coaching intervention where people who chose conscientiousness as their big five trait to improve, there was some success there. But it, it was very intensive, not the kind of thing you could roll out to like a classroom of kids. But you know, it could be 10 or 20 years from now we have a better way to, to improve conscientiousness. But um, I, I don't think there's a, a lot of room there to have a big effect on academic outcomes to be honest. Right. And I think you're, you, the, the, the broader point of the chapter is, again, you know, kind of hitting home the same thing you've been mentioning in the book is like, it's not a one, there's not a one factor here that's going to erase, you know, uh, school, you know, poor performance in school. It's going to be lots of different things. Yeah. I also, I mean, I got a little bit personal in that chapter because I'm, I'm, I'm recording this from a pretty wealthy Boston suburb I grew up in and a woman, um, who's a principal at a school maybe five miles away, a poor school, wrote a book called When Grit Is Not Enough. And her whole argument is like, okay, grit's fine. But, you know, she knows a lot of kids who are like, would have been first generation college students. And then they they don't fill out one form on time because they didn't have an adult tell them to the way I had adults tell me to. Or they couldn't make a, a student fees payment. And then like their college dreams go up in smoke. And it just seems like when you look at the actual reasons people who might otherwise go to college don't or or fall off the track it's very rarely it seems very rare that grit is the um the operating factor yeah i actually i really like that part of the book when you talked about the when grit is not enough there's another thing uh which uh i was just thinking about earlier today uh when grit backfires right this i think this is this 
I'm not sure if it's a psychological concept or or one from 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 literature. John Henryism, you know, the 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 person who works so hard who ends up end up dying from working so hard just to just to uh, be equal to someone who doesn't have to work quite as hard and and, and you know ends up dying. Um, so there are there are downsides to <laughs> too much grit. <laughs> well, also, I mean, I stole this point from Daniel Engber. Has he been on your podcast? Yep. Yes, he was. I thought so. Um, yeah, he just pointed out that like in a lot of fields, like if you're a journalist or a startup bro, having too much stick to can be a bad thing. You need to know when to abandon a story or a startup or whatever else. So um, yeah, it's just another fair critique of grit in my mind. Mickey, um, where are you at with beers? I'm out. and uh, I'm out I, as well. Yeah, I think we should uh, get another one and then talk about journalism. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we're on Twitter at Four Beers Pod. You can at mention us or DM us. Uh, we both check that account pretty frequently. If you'd rather email, uh, our email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com, where uh, that'll go to both of us as well. Uh, finally, our website is fourbeers.com, and you can listen to any of our episodes there and drop us a line via the feedback form there as well if you like. Uh, one note if you're enjoying the show, please do rate and review us on the podcast platform of your choice, such as Apple Podcasts, just helps other people discover the show. And and also we like it. Uh, Mickey, uh, anything to add? Yeah, I just wanted to, well, again, you know, thank all our listeners for listening and uh, those who send us emails or tweets, uh, what have you. We, we appreciate it. And I want to spend, uh, send an extra special thanks to Lindsay Osterman, who is a professor of psychology, I believe, in at, at Roanoke. I'm in Virginia. Um, and we had a long email exchange uh, a few weeks ago now after our episode with Lee Jessam, which seemed to have struck a nerve with, with quite a few people. Um, and uh, it was a pretty long exchange. So I won't uh, get into all the details, but she uh, liked the episode with Lee, but she found herself in disagreement with pretty much everything he said. <laughs> I think that the, 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 her, her, one of the things that, you know, was un- uncovered as we had this discussion was that she too used to be really, really worried about, um, you know, a cancel culture at universities and of uh, people, you know, being, uh, appearing to be summarily fired. And she was extremely worried about it and took it really, really seriously. And then she started doing a bit of research, personal research on, you know, various people who have been canceled and each time, you know, in her search, she found that there was a broader context uh, that was not reported and that might have explained some of the reasons why they were quote-unquote canceled. So um, whether we agree or disagree, uh, I, I think it was really cool uh, conversation with her. And I really, you know, want to thank her for, for sharing her views because uh, it, was, it was interesting. 
So thank you, Lindsay. That's weird that someone disagreed with Lee Jessam. I, I know. <laughs> I mean, he puts his points so tactfully and diplomatically that you really have to be a terrible person to disagree with him. Actually, I think a lot of people are were surprised in that episode by how... Um, I don't want to insult Lee, but how normally sounded and how reasonable, <laughs> uh, you know, his arguments were, uh, because, you know, he comes off on, on Twitter, he comes off, uh, not, not so well. <laughs> hey, Twitter uh, destroys our brains, man. People, I'm sure there's so many people who've seen me at my worst on Twitter and just think I'm horrible. No, that you, what are you talking about? That's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's not possible. Um, you know, I, I also had conversations with a couple folks who listened to the Lee Jessam episode who didn't really like know who he was or anything. And were like, why is this guy controversial? This all sounds totally reasonable. So yeah, I, I think so much of this is the like context of like how people act online that like just, you know, you, you think is going to be some just complete lunatic. Yeah, you're saying you're 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 suggesting to me that perhaps Twitter feedback does not represent uh, real world opinions. Controversial take, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I feel like I'm derailing this like every no, single way. No, but listen, I have a I have a you know a little mantra uh, you know that was given to me uh, not when I was a child but recently, and I have it you know stuck on my. Uh, above my bed, which keeps on just to remind me Twitter is not the real world. Because despite me knowing this, I need to be reminded of it <laughs> regularly. Yeah. It, I mean, the whole point of the platform is to convince you to hack the ancient parts of your brain and make you think that this social feedback matters a ton. <laughs> right. But, you know, I mean, like, Mickey, I like that as a, as a way to live your life. And I, I think for us, that's true. In journalism, I'm less convinced that that's true. Like, it, oh, I mean, I, we can get, I have a whole thing. It's not true. Journalism is the real world it, or Twitter. And yeah, no, I do. I mean, I, I like kind of want to get there. Um, and then the second half, I have some like journalism related questions. Let's just like tie a bow on this other thing. And then, and then we'll, we'll get there. Yep. Like, so you have kind of a sociological argument for why these Wait, hold on you out hold on what oh fuck beers <laughs> I have. sorry <laughs> sorry some of us some of us have beers. yes okay i'm still drinking the same tequila what are you guys drinking uh jesse uh i'm doing this is also jack's abbey craft lagers a post shift pilsner uh yeah nice golds Nice gold can that reminds me of the Legend of Zelda NES cartridge for some reason because I have a broken <laughs> brain. Nice. That's a great nice. reference. That's a very that millennial a reference. reference. Thank you. Um, I've got something called a Glitter Bomb uh, by Phillips Brewing and Malting Company. Uh, it's a hazy pale ale. I think I I found this in the beer store. Uh, I think it's out of, out of British Columbia. Yeah, it's out of Victoria, uh, British Columbia. So cheers. L'chaim. Cheers. Okay, so uh, the question I was going to ask uh, before, Mickey, you, you rudely cut me off, um, is you have a sociological explanation for why these, what you call these prime world style explanations, which is basically there's a complicated social problem and you propose some monocausal in individual heads explanation slash solution for that problem. And then people are like, oh, yes, this is the only cause of this problem. So in you, you have kind of a, a sociology of why you think that those sorts of explanations are so popular. Can you just talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah. I mean, I hate, <laughs> I can only say it's complicated so many times. It, it is complicated. Part of it is, I, I feel like we latch onto scientific ideas that sort of fit pre-existing grooves in our brain or our culture. 
Um, one of the chapters is about this like big failed anti-PTSD program in the military that was very much couched in military language of, of resilience and bootstraps and self-improvement. And the argument I make, which of course is speculative, is the army didn't get attracted to this program at, at random or on the strength of its data. It it was attracted to this program because the program spoke the army's language. And similarly, you know, power posing spoke the language of sort of what was it, early 2010s corporate Sheryl Sandberg lean in feminism. So the ideas that catch on one of the things I want like lay readers to understand is just like the ideas that run the gauntlet and get to the TED talk stage or, or get to big book deals. It's often not because of the weight of their scientific evidence. It's because they're scratching some sort of cultural itch. Yeah. There's sort of like a cultural context that it fits in well with. That's like maybe very like fleeting, right? Like we're, we're now sort of looking back on their like lean in era on being like, I don't, I, I, I would think that the, the mainstream take is shifting to be kind of more skeptical of that, that whole approach. Yeah. Right. But like at the time it was huge and power posing happened. Yeah, to it's, come a along. it's a fact. It's yeah. a fact. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But I, I want to dig a bit deeper there. Um, and I think you, you discussed it. I think it was in your final chapter. Um, it's, you mentioned that it's, it's it's more than simply like what the context might be and how it fits a certain you know moment in time. So lean in is a good example, but that the public, maybe all of us scientists as well, we're really attracted to the simple, easy fix, right? There's something about yes, that's it, and if I just do this one thing, I I've got it. I, I've solved the problem. Yeah. Um. So. Why is that? And uh, I mean, we're the psychologists. Maybe we should, we should ask yeah, ourselves should ask that. You. Maybe you know, though. Well, I mean, is I think it's just to actually try to hold in your head the complicated tangle of forces leading to educational inequality is difficult. To be maybe some of the kids need to work harder, be more, have more stick-to-itiveness is very simple. And I do think overall, simple ideas stick in our heads and spread more than complicated ones and simple mantras stick in our head more. So I, I just think it's like a pretty basic feature of our cognitive architecture that simple stories win out. Um, did you guys have Nina Strominger on here? Yes, we did. Nice. My book is littered with references from your guests. I, I quote her at the end of the book, just talking about how we shouldn't assume that just because like a theory is elegant, it's right. And I think as scientists, you guys probably feel some level of tension where like an elegant theory is maybe going to get more respect or attention, but you, the more elegant and the more simple you get, not that elegant and simplicity are the same thing, but the, you're, you're losing something in terms of ability to deal with complexity or randomness or whatever. Yeah. I mean, uh, to me, it seems like this fixation on the, the single cause um, from the researcher end has to do with more that's easier to study. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and then, you know, how do you sell it to granting agencies or to journalists or, you know, book publishers or whatever is you need to tie it to some problem people care about. Um, and, and so that like, I, I guess that, explains the you know the the seller's end of it then there still has to be a market for it right so i don't think this invalidates what you're saying like people do get enthusiastic about that stuff and i think that does demand an explanation but like the supply side of it i think is very straightforwardly about the kind of research that's easy to do there's a really good book by a guy named i think john greenwood um 
I had some more history of social psych in my book originally. It just got cut. It just didn't work with the flow. But his book was basically about, um, I think it's called The Individual in Social Psychology. It's this detailed history of how social psychology came to be fixated on individuals and individuals in lab settings. Um, and some of the answers are sort of obvious. Like you're saying, it's just easier to generate data that way. But you know, at this point, it would almost be harder to imagine a social psychology that wasn't fixated on individuals and labs, but it didn't, it didn't have to be that way. But there's all sorts of incentives just in terms of like the day-to-day business of doing science that I think push you down that road a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. it we recently saw a talk uh, at, at U of T from uh, Betsy Levy Palak, who I think you, you quote her. She's great. Yeah. Yeah. She's awesome. Um, and she talked about her meta-analysis of prejudice reduction interventions and, and specifically this idea that intergroup contact makes you less prejudiced. She's like, here are some great studies that I found. And there are these like incredibly difficult, you know, like you uh, put Arabs and Jews on the same soccer team. I'm mangling this a bit. Muslims and Christians. Yes, thank you. I was going to say the Arabs will kick the Jews' ass. <laughs> yes, I, I know. It's not a fair fight. <laughs> Muslims and Christians, thank you, on the same soccer team, and you follow them for months, and you see if they get less prejudiced, and like they do maybe a little towards the people on their soccer teams, but not anybody else, right? So that's a really hard study to do. And then she's like, and here is like the most common type of study that you see, and it's like, imagine interacting with a Muslim if you're a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine the sight. Imagine you have a pleasant interaction. He's a nice fellow. Right. One of my favorite studies of her I wrote up when I was at New York Magazine was this anti-bullying intervention that required the cooperation of, I think, dozens of New Jersey schools. And it was this massive effort and and it was a really promising intervention. But yeah, who has the resources to pull something off like that unless you're like a, a MacArthur grant winner? Yeah, I mean, it's just hard, right? It's like, even if you have a lot of money, it's still, it's time consuming and then you might not get anything. And it's a lot like you can be like, all right, well, let's just like run that over five times until it works. So if you can get away with doing the easy thing, if that's publishable and that's like, you know, you can do a TED talk on that and you can write a book about that and nobody's going to ask any questions, then like, why not, right? Like just by natural selection, those sorts of things are going to win out over over the people who have to spend, you know, years doing one study, right? Yeah. And I think there's just like such low hanging fruit. Um, I don't want to beat up on Amy Cuddy. I don't want to be a, uh, a methodological terrorist, but you know, when you see the, the claim she was making about this one very small in retrospect, P hack study, it's like, you guys just need stronger norms where someone's like, you know, that's not cool that that should be not, not the equivalent of plagiarism in journalism, but pretty bad. You shouldn't do that. And I think that part seems pretty fixable because often it's pretty clear when someone is overclaiming, there's just maybe not the, you know, it's awkward to, to call someone out for it. Although thanks to the, uh, the replication bros, what are they called? The people on Twitter that I guess that's becoming easier now. Right. Right. The, the broken science folks. Um, <laughs> broken science. I heard the very, I heard the open, the, uh, your your arch enemies on very bad wizards talking about broken science with a little bit of skepticism. That's right, um, Mickey. Did you want to jump in here? I I see you. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I did. Um, so this this conversation reminds me a little bit of when I first, well, as a young graduate student, and I joined uh, the Association for Psychological Science, and I think it was 1999, and then eventually I got roped in. I was even in, in the student council uh, or the student body of of that organization, and. Uh, 
at that point, psychology is not like it is today, um, where psychology is in the news every single day. Every single day we got psychology. Back then, it was like very rare for psychology to, to get any media attention whatsoever. And the big push from APS uh, was to, quote unquote, give psychology away. Um, and I can't help but think that, you know, you all, you talked about the seller, uh, us being the sellers here, that in our quest to give psychology away, we dumbed it down. We, we made it all about one thing and one thing only. Um, and, you know, again, this is in 1999. And, and then what the early 2000s, we saw like that was the rise of those crazy, you know, uh, priming studies that would often appear in APS journals. Um, so it, it just, you know, I understand the push to give psychology away. You want to be relevant. Um, we're all jealous of economists, but it, it, it's clear that, uh, it, it, it came at a cost, I think of, you know, you know, going from something complex to something really, really simple that is digestible to, uh, to, to, to the media uh, and to journalists as well, um, so, anyways, I'm not, that was not a question at all. Just a diatribe and a monologue. More, more of a comment than a question. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> well, so this is actually a nice lead-in, though, to the next thing that I wanted to ask you. Like, you know, we started off talking about like how do you divvy up the responsibility for this between researchers and and, and journalists. And I mean, I think you're totally right. Like that, we should, and I hope now are shifting more towards having professional norms where that's not looked on positively, um, that level of like overhyping a kind of a single study. At the same time, you know, there's lots of other areas in which journalists are really intensely skeptical, right? They're not just stenographers for what politicians say um, or what uh, business people say about their companies. Uh, they dig and they're critical um, and they push back. And it seems like, there ought to be room for a science journalism that says, hey, so-and-so is making this big claim based on one study, N of 50, p-values don't look great. Uh, maybe don't buy it, right? Like, where are those folks? Well, man, there's a lot to unpack there. Okay, so first of all, there, you know, there are a few of us. I'd like to think I filled that role when I was writing more regularly. Stephanie Lee at BuzzFeed. You guys should have her on. She's like, Oh, one of the best we young. should totally have her on. That's a great yeah. idea. Yeah, she's great. I'm a little jealous of her because she's like young and broke open the Wansick thing and so on. Um, I would actually dispute your claim that journalists are good at being skeptical. I think there's like a sort of burgeoning crisis in our field in terms of exactly that skepticism. Um, there are a lot of areas where we're not skeptical, where we ride ideological currents. In theory, the main problem as far as science goes is just like – it requires a little bit of special specialty expertise. Like you need to at least know how to like read a regression table and know what constitutes a decent sample size or effect size. A lot of people just don't have that training and they write off press releases. So it takes more training than many other kinds of journalism. But um, unfortunately, I just don't think that problem is unique to uh, to social science journalism or behavioral science journalism. Yeah. So say a little more about this like um – lack of skepticism or, or writing ideological currents? Because, you know, I mean, the arc of your career has been going from like being very embedded and I would say like the mainstream journalistic world to kind of like being out on your own, right? You, um, you know, you still certainly do sometimes write for mainstream outlets, but mainly now you're doing a podcast, you're writing a sub stack, uh, you're writing your own book. So w what's going on in journalism? 
I think it's just been horrible. Um, I mean, readers can check us. My Substack is jessysingle.substack.com. I do, I do like more media criticism than I'd like to. I just think because of the structural problems, because everything's collapsing financially, that's had these really bad sort of knock on effects in terms of a, a real sense that you need to always show you're on the right team. Like, you see so much coverage colored by what I call like right side norms rather than accuracy norms. This is admittedly oversimplified, but like right side norms is like the norm that mostly you should show you're on the right side of an issue. And accuracy norms are are more concerned with accuracy at any cost. And I see there's so many examples of journalists like not doing their jobs these days and acting more like, you know, public relations people. Not that there's anything wrong with PR, but we're supposed to be separate fields and I'm worried we're becoming indistinguishable. Let's um, tell people what Substack is, shall we? Substack is a um, it's a it's a newsletter service. So I make um, a good chunk of my income by sending my sizzling hot takes and sometimes longer articles directly into readers' inboxes. They pay for the privilege either four or five dollars a month, and this is um, a small number of us have been incredibly fortunate, and this has worked really well for us. I'm like I'm like mid tier. I make what I think is solid money, but like the stars, the Matt Taibbi and Glenn Greenwald and Matt Iglesias types, uh, they're making seven or $800,000 a year or more just on their own doing this. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely a, a fan of the the platform and it's been sort of um, kind of rediscovering how much I like reading essentially blog posts, right? They're blog posts, but they email them to you. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I subscribe to quite a few. I get Matt Iglesias's every morning, which is like, by the way, that guy, it's insane how much that guy can write. Insane. insane. So I feel bad about myself. Every time I open this email, I'm like, holy shit, look at all this. This guy wrote this like today or the day before, I guess. But like, what did I write? A paragraph. <laughs> and I, I feel good about that. <laughs> so anyway, but that's a, that's a tangent. Like, it's great. Like, and there's people doing great work and they're doing them kind of more like, longer form thoughtful things that you can't that are that are hard to do at i guess conventional outlets and i i think it's great that it, that exists i also worry that like if all the longer form thoughtful stuff is happening kind of behind a paywall and the stuff you get for free or even with your like time subscription is less and less about long and thoughtful and more and more about just flattering your pre-existing ideological prejudices, that seems like a bad spot to be in too. And in a way, like almost Substack exacerbates that by pulling out those people and like putting them someplace else. Yeah. I mean, so so one of the reasons I got really mad that people were so angry at Substack is like, I mean, I would gladly be writing a lot more for mainstream outlets if I thought I could get those pitches accepted. But anything that deviates from the most stifling conformity it just it's harder it's not that it'll always get rejected it's just like there's this death by a thousand cuts things where it gets edited so much more closely i had a piece about this amazing college scandal killed because like i mean this is actually going to be running somewhere else soon so i shouldn't say too much but it was it was basically killed for reasons where if she hadn't had different politics no one would it never would have been killed and a lot of those stories are are happening behind the scenes and people aren't hearing about them because like when they happen, people call me or they DM me freaking out about it. But ever since George Floyd, there's been like this borderline moral panic within a lot of news outlets that, you know, sometimes you see it manifest. Like 
I don't know how familiar you guys are with the Donald McNeil or Mike Pesca stories, but in some cases, people are losing their jobs or, or being threatened with it. There's something weird going on in journalism right now. I think it's similar to what's going on on some campuses, and it's very couched in revolutionary rhetoric, but I find it um, A, more worrisome and less productive than a lot of people do. Um, so, you know, you're, you're uh, talking uh, poorly of the New York Times, the uh, the, the nation's uh, paper, whatever the, the, the fucking motto is. Um, uh, the paper of record, that's what it is, right? Um, and I hear this a lot uh, online. But where else should I turn to? Should I, should I go check out Fox News? Uh, uh, Omni? Uh, what, Newsmax? Or Stor- the- Stormfront is really good. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm, I, I have actually gotten that question from, from readers and listeners. Like, where should I turn? You should turn to the New York Times and the Atlantic and New York Magazine and Vox. Unfortunately, there's way more garbage to sift through to get to the good stuff than there used to be. But overall, the Times still can pay like, the people to be the – like, it's still an excellent publication. It's just like – there's a subset of issues where I know beforehand I'm going to have to read this with such a skeptical eye and that depresses the shit out of me, A, that it's true and B, that it's so predictable. I know exactly when I'm going to know, like, have to be like, oh, that's probably false. Um, but overall, these are still the best publications in the world. Um, you know, but also like read Matt Iglesias on Substack. He, he, you're not going to get that voice elsewhere. He's uniquely smart. And then for other subjects, people like Matt Taibbi and Andrew Sullivan and Glenn Greenwald, you know, they all have their weaknesses, as do we all. But there's a reason so many people will pay them directly. Yeah. So we had this conversation uh, a few episodes ago about whether the media handled COVID coverage well or poorly. And I, I think I was a little more on the like, they didn't do as well as you would hope side than than maybe Mickey was. And I, so this makes me wonder whether some of this stuff is is broader than just like political, like live wires that when it comes to like complicated scientific topics, that reporters often just don't do a good job of conveying the uncertainty appropriately and that in my view they're often overly credulous towards whatever public health authorities happen to be saying at the moment right so when they're like masks don't help you they just sort of write that and it seems sort of embarrassing that an outsider um like uh zainab and oh man i'm gonna try and do her last name uh to i think yeah Right. right yeah so she's not she's like a sociologist or something right she's not an expert but she really early yeah. on was like uh it seems like masks are probably a good idea and why did it have to be her right there's like armies of science reporters at the times like why am i not hearing this from them instead of some random academic it's such an important question. I don't know, man. It, it's weird. It's like because reporting, you need to strike this balance where you're supposed to go to the CDC and the WHO, government authorities, but they are often wrong. And in a fast moving like world historical situation, the idea that anyone has the right answer at a given moment is pretty low. But you also need to write something. Your your story can't be 800 words of hedging. So it, it's genuinely thorny, and I, I don't envy. COVID reporters. But I mean, I guess all we can do is like, you know, someone like Zainab will emerge from the fray and, and prove to be the trustworthy voice. But uh, yeah, they, they, journalists haven't always covered themselves uh, in glory on this subject. 
You know, so I hear this over and over again, this, this mask issue. Okay. Okay. Journalists got it fucking wrong for a, a month. Uh, or however long it was. And eventually there was, you know, more data came in, more, more scientists weighed in and they got it right eventually. Um, so my take here was, again, I'm, you know, I know nothing about, you know, at least back then about COVID and, 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 you know, epidemiology, what have you. So I'm going to go with what the experts say. And at that point, the experts said masks weren't that important. Although even then it was like, there was some like uncertainty. And then eventually they, they kind of drilled down and said, actually, no, we, we, we fucked up and actually masks are important. I mean, isn't that an example of, you know, that, you know, the process working out? Yes, they didn't get it right at first, but okay, we're, we're, we're fallible. Um, I don't see that as an example of, of the media gone, you know, going haywire or, you know, not being uh, skeptical enough. Yeah, I mean, so my my own critiques of the worst aspects of COVID coverage are a little different. But I, I think there's something to what you're saying that is just it's always going to be a messy process and no one's going to have the right answer at first. And it's, it's iterative, right? You would hope a given science writers like every story will be um, better than their last one and, and incorporate more knowledge. Yeah, it's provisional, just like science is. It's like, this is what we think now. Tomorrow will be different, and the day after that will be different again. And, I mean, as a scientist, we, as scientists, we, we should be okay with that. I understand the lay public is sometimes upset about it, but... I don't, I, I don't think that's right, it, at least not entirely. So the problem I have is with this excess certainty. So the public health authorities say masks don't help you, and it's not, well, the public health authorities are saying this. They're probably right. On the other hand, a lot of Asian countries adopted widespread mask wearing after SARS, and it seems like it worked out pretty well for them, and it is an airborne virus, so there's no reason to think that masks certainly wouldn't help you. In fact, there's some chance that they actually might. And you know, if you look back, there are people who got this right, so like Silicon Valley tech bros were before the pandemic very worried about it, right? And they were like, there's a tail risk here that this becomes a worldwide problem. And they took steps, like, for example, uh, VCs had fewer in-person meetings, there were forgoing handshakes. You know, they did all this stuff that at this time seemed paranoid and that people in the press, like, lampooned them. They were like, these crazy tech bros, yeah. you should worry about the flu, right? And, and I don't think that's just that, oh, the tech bros happened to get lucky and be right, and the media happened, those reporters, I shouldn't say the media generally, those reporters who wrote the stories, the editors who told them to write them, um, got it wrong per se. It's that they're thinking about probability in the wrong way. They're overly certain. There's also like a huge, I don't know, like contrarian impulse of like you see someone doing something the wrong way and that's a great thing to make fun of them and to just do it in a very knee-jerk manner. I'm not sure that's always been like a prominent feature of journalism, but it's very big right now, just like pointing to someone and laughing and ridiculing. And I don't think that's always like compatible with careful science coverage, especially of a pandemic. Yeah, right. So certainly what played into this is this like animosity between traditional media and, and tech. Searing. Yeah, exactly. So they didn't like those people. And this was an opportunity to be like, ha ha, look how dumb they are, which in retrospect looks, looks pretty fucking dumb. But like more broadly, it's about like, you know, excess certainty, right? So yeah, I mean, maybe that's who, who, who had the excess certainty. Was it the journalist conveying the message or was it the scientist? I think it, you know, it was a hundred percent the journalist conveying the message that, you know, I mean, like part of this is non-scientific. It's just kind of like, use your head right? Like there is some chance that this becomes really bad and we can't just dismissively say, oh, you know, worry about the flu instead. This is nothing, which is literally like those were headlines you were seeing 
in early um Jesus, what year is it? In early 2020. <laughs> <laughs> it's 2025, you will. Right? It's like there's some people believe the wrong thing and there's a right answer, and we know with 100% certainty that that right answer is correct. And our job is to write stories disabuse, disabusing people of their stupid wrong opinions. To what extent do you think Twitter feeds into this? Because we, like we sort of touched on this earlier. You, you said, like, well, Twitter is real life if you're in journalism. Twitter, I, I have always tried not to be a Luddite, but Twitter has such a horrifically pernicious effect on journalism. And I know because I remember sitting in the office at New York Magazine 2014, 2015, Twitter is always one of your tabs and you instantly see how all your friends in journalism respond to every story and you instantly shape your coverage to make sure you don't run afoul of that. And you cannot imagine a worse system for producing the truth than you're looking over your shoulder. You see all your friends to make everyone's watching everyone to make sure no one says the wrong thing. It's just really bad. Yeah, right. It's like a it's like a groupthink machine. It's like if you were to design a system, <laughs> uh, you could not do better than that. Um, okay, I feel like this turned into fifteen minutes of my cranky rants about complaints. <laughs> Mickey, do you would you like to ask our guest something? Uh, I would, but I, you know we are running out of time, so maybe we should uh, wrap things up a little a little bit. So we've been talking a lot about journalism. And uh, really pessimistic, which maybe is warranted. Uh, but I wonder if we can end on, you know, some some optimism and how you think you know journalists can do better. Uh, how you know what you know yeah what wh- how could things be different in ten years other than burning Twitter to the ground? Um, God, the basic like model for financing journalism is broken. So. I'm hoping maybe like you need like billionaire philanthropists who don't mind losing a lot of money to step up. Like there's this history of some rich person buys a publication and you think they'll be cool losing money. Then they actually don't want to lose money. It turns out rich people do not like losing money. Uh, that there's like the nonprofit pro publica model. I, I'm just, I, I see very little reason for hope in terms of producing, you know, like I said, Nashua Town Hall, Baltimore Town Hall for that matter. I don't I don't see what's going to pop up that could possibly replicate the past. I, I will say this this model where if you can get 1,000 or 1,500 people to pay for your newsletter, uh, you can make a living in most cities like that. That's genuinely promising in terms of like solo writers who are really good on one area and can then get paid to immerse themselves in that area every day. That's a genuinely promising thing because like, you know, that 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 means you don't need to get hired by someone. You can just strike out on your own and a few Substack people are going to build great careers just from Substack, just becoming an expert in one area, which I think will be good. So could you do that like in a non-punditry domain? So imagine you're like a small city. Somebody's like, I'm going to be the investigative reporter who like goes to all the city council meetings and digs up dirt on what the school board is doing. And you can subscribe to my Substack. Like, are is is that feasible? Like, maybe a thousand people want to do that. It might be, but but good journalism relies on like editors and copy editors and like a system. I think you will see that. For all I know, that's already popped up, and I think you'll see a few iterations of it. But like. Overall, you can't really do reporting totally solo the way you can do punditry totally solo. Or, yeah, I, 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 I've been thinking about that. I want something like that to happen, but like when you think about the money involved and how much you, you need a, to do journalism, you need to be able to talk to 
15 people on the phone and then only use interviews from three of them and spend six hours in a city hall meeting only hoping for one moment, uh, only hoping for like one key moment. And, you know, newspapers used to be able to support that kind of thing and they can't anymore. And I'm, I'm skeptical Substack will be able to replicate it. Man, I feel like we keep trying to push this in an optimistic direction. <laughs> oh, no. I'm, I'm getting like I'm dr- I'm been drinking, so I get more. <laughs> you get <right> gloomy. <laughs> I mean, like it, totally. I've mean, listened to all this. I'm totally depressed. And then you couple that. I mean, this is like uh, a part of the you know uh, one outcome of what we've all been talking about is that everyone has their own individual you know you know handcrafted news feed. They all see their own version of the news, which is just whatever they want to read, whatever they care about. And because that's all they read and all they care about, they think it's the truth. They think it has to be true. Um, and then you have people who legitimately think, you know, that diametrically opposed things. Each of those things are true. Um, yeah, it's fucking sad. It's not good. And, and it worries me, especially like something like Andrew Sullivan leaving New York Magazine. And like now there's a cluster of those guys that I'm sometimes included with, even though they're all much more successful than me, of like, you know, the sort of uh, heterodox lefty types, although Sullivan's more centrist, like uh, Taibbi, Glenn Greenwald, Matt Iglesias to a lesser extent. We all of us, or all of them at least, they're all bigger names, and we should be able to just be staffers at a regular publication. The idea that like Matt Iglesias is beyond the pale for Vox or Andrew Sullivan beyond the pale for New York Magazine, the siloization worries me a great deal. I, I think you need a broader range of opinions under one roof for this for outlets to produce interesting stuff. But that's a whole other negative valley of death we don't need to travel down right now wow yeah we're we're bummed out enough already fuck you guys <laughs> thanks a lot let's talk about the book again god damn it three more hours on the book Go. okay so um jesse what is the book called again uh <laughs> the quick fix why why uh fad psychology can't cure our social ills a love story Awesome. Yeah, that book, actually, it has an uplifting ending, which is nice. It does. So um, one suggestion that I really liked, um, Jesse, I think you posted this. Uh, We will have an Amazon link in the show notes. Uh, But if people don't feel like spending money or don't feel like giving Amazon their money, you can call your local library and you can ask them to get it for you. And they probably will, right? That is a wonderful way to support me if you either, uh, if you can't buy the book or don't want to ask for it at your local library. There's also IndieBound, which is a website that is not Amazon that I think supports local bookstores. So feel free to check out IndieBound. But yeah, I've been trying to trying to message hard on the library thing because I think that's uh, some untapped potential for authors there. Yeah, I thought that was very cool. Uh, Thank you, Mickey. Do you you want to jump in with anything else? No, I mean I, Jesse, it was it was awesome to have you on, and like this went in really unexpected directions, at least for me. Um, and I think uh, our listeners will, will, will really like it. So thanks so much for, for, com- for coming back on the show. Really appreciate it. I really, really appreciate you guys having me, and I really, really appreciate the show. It's awesome. Awesome. Thanks, man.